You need courage to face down the demons from the past. Because all the 50 murderers I worked with all killed a parental figment. You have to have the confidence that there's something really serious going on and you can tell by whatever they've done. Murder, obviously, serial killers, whatever it is. Uh, you can tell by the size of the aberration that something serious has gone wrong. These psychopaths, so-called, had all been born lovable, sociable, and nonviolent, mm. And something had gone wrong. I remember saying to Bob at one time, I actually need to see the men. I need to, I need to see. So I went into Sea Wing and uh, basically Sea Wing was set up for the psychiatrically disturbed, dangerous, extremely violent men that, that uh, Broadmoor couldn't handle. So they were too dangerous for Broadmoor. So I went to see this chap. He was hallucinating two foot size images of his dad coming through the wall. So the officer said, we can't understand he's sleeping on the floor. And that he was saying, so I started talking about his dad. Instead of saying, I don't want to talk about my father now, he punched me. Boom. So in the first session, he says, well, part of me wants to kill. And as long as it wants to, I will let it. And I thought, just a minute. And then the rumors started going around that he was uh, garroting his pillow, preparatory to garroting me. My most dangerous prisoner, no question, was Robert Maudsley. He was a serial killer, had been a serial killer, and um, had killed, I think, four times in prison or something like this. So I'm, I'm passing through the hospital on another occasion, and he's got these wire mesh things. We start chatting, and he says, if I had a friend who uh, had this sort of problem, what would you do? I said, well, I would talk to your friend, you know, this sort of stuff. We knew what we were talking about. It. So I sat on the end of the bed near the door. And he's at that end. And uh, he says, my, my hands are getting sweaty. And I said, if you frighten me, I can't help you. We were making incredible progress. We were unpacking his appalling childhood. He eventually said, I see these things quite differently than a few months ago. The prison service saw him changing, shipped him out. The system couldn't yeah. take the idea that, that Morsey was getting better. What an indictment of the prison service. It spent the last 30 years creating special cages for these men that Bob was treating. Terrible for the prison officers to have to look after them in such terrible conditions. Terrible for the men themselves. Terrible for society. Total waste of money, total waste of resources, total indictment of, a, of an approach. Here we go. We have finally got Dr. Bob on the channel and his wife, Sue, who is an author and educator. They are both campaigning for serious changes in prison policy, which dovetails exactly with what we've been saying on this channel. But they've got such vast experience. We've had Christopher Berry Dion, very popular, who does the interviews with serial killers. And these guys as well have sat down with people like Maudsley, Charles Bronson. Bob sat down with so many serial killers, three of them actually plotted to take his life. We're going to be getting to some of those stories. They've got a number of books that they've written. And all of the links for the books will be below this video in the description box if you're watching it on YouTube, as will all of their socials if you want to follow them. 
and get in touch. And I urge you to do so because they're on such an important mission. Bob was even ostracized because his work in the prison was doing so well, but the government shut it down, of course. Well, we'll start out with me reading a letter from Charles Bronson to talk to Bob Johnson. A sad day to see you go. But I must admit, I admire your principles. It's a rare sight to see a doctor stand up to this system. I first hit C-Wing 20 years ago. It's always been a unit for guys with problems and it's basically worked. Even more so when you took over. You've done more in five years than the rest done in 25. In fact, 125. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cooper was a man who believed in drug control, whereas you believed in humanity, then trust. Your way obviously worked as you cut the violence. When I first hit C-Unit, it was a violent struggle. Stabbings, cuttings on a regular basis. In fact, Brian Peake was murdered on there, and there were many hostage sieges. Your report says it all. Not once was the alarm bell used in two years. That's not just a remarkable achievement. It's, in fact, a miracle. No unit wing or asylum could ever give such an outstanding report. Your way worked. And all you've got for it is contempt. A kick in the face. Well said, Charles Bronson. Not just you, but every member of staff on the teachers too. And let's not forget the cons. It could have been a success without the... It could not have been a success without their cooperation. My spells on C-Wing over the years have not been quite as successful, but that was down to my own personal problems, nothing to do with yourself. I know it will be a bad blow for many who will now be lost and have nothing more than a hell existence, a solitary survival, and all for trying to help themselves to be normal people. It won't surprise me if one or two may now be suicidal. All will feel betrayed and will feel bitter. Some will return to violence as their last resort. But you know better than anybody it's a sign of the times to put us in cages and forget us completely. Bob, for me, there's been nothing. I've worked at myself so hard. I wrote an award-winning book. I've even become a cartoonist. I've also found peace in my Islamic way of life. But in my last three years of multiple transfers, it's gradually driven me to feel more persecuted. I was driven mad in the 1970s and now experiencing the exact effects now. Lost, paranoid, confused, periods of depression, violent thoughts. As much as I've tried and put into changing my ways, the system seems destined to keep me isolated and on the move. Recently, I jumped on a doctor. I was overpowered. I'm now facing another court case, no doubt more years. But nobody asks why Bronson takes hostages. Well, the answer is, Bob, I am a very effed up guy, desperate. It's the emptiness of never knowing when I will be moved or where to. It's the desperation of life itself. Never seeing other cons, never seeing a TV. Having my family drift away, it's irreversible damage. All the system has done up to now is make my problems manifest, cause the violence. Take today, I arrived here at Full Sutton Seg Block on the 3rd of Jan. Told I'm only here for 28 days, now it's 33. So how do I tell my family to come and see me if I may move any hour? How do I settle? 
I'm just locked up in a cell. I don't take exercise. I don't take showers. I may use two or three words in a day, if that. There is no stability. There is nobody to trust. So my journey continues on until I'm far, too far gone to even trust good people. I made my wishes clear to you. I was hoping for a return to C unit. As I felt, I was ready for another chance. Lots of screws in various blocks also said it's high time I came off of this movement. You said we will move every three months. Well, I move every few weeks. All I can say is, Bob, and I speak for all the guys in the system, such as myself, guys who put the whole lot into your works, your leaving is a great loss to us all. I wish you well in your next project. You earned our respect and trust. Now we are back to square one. Respect, Charlie Bronson. P.S. Life is a bitch, and then you're born. There is no end, only a beginning. Oh my goodness, what a introduction, Bob, and huge shout out and thank you to Charles Bronson for that. Um, by way of introduction, I know you want to give the backstory to that letter, but perhaps could you go way back and tell us how you were first introduced to Charles Bronson? So no problem. Thanks. I um, my background is. Uh, <clears throat> I've always been interested in psychiatry. To me, it's the queen of the medical sciences and uh, should be um, uh, prominent right at the top. Um, but in my, of course, in my career, eventually I was able to um, deflect people from giving shock treatment. Uh, as a very junior, you do what you're told and you give people shock treatment. So when I was in a position to control that, I deflected people from it because I think it's a barbaric treatment and it should be uh, outlawed. Um, and unfortunately, the consultant I was working with at the time uh, took this badly uh, and blocked any further promotion in psychiatry. I was, I, was, I was destined for a career in psychiatry and he blocked it. There was no way forward. So I moved, as I could do then, into general practice. I had three children and um, uh, moved into general practice and continued to study uh, childhoods. I knew there was something there, I didn't know what it was. After 19 years, people saying, you're doing all right, Dr. Bob, you're doing all right. And I think, well, how, what do they know? You know? But after a while, uh, I was able to address the fear in one particular patient. And what was striking about that was uh, she had emotional problems. She was about 40 year old, grossly overweight, with um, blood pressure. And she came to see my practice nurse. And uh, I said, would you be interested in working out some of the emotional background? And she said, yes. So we talked together f an hour a week for six months. And we weren't making a lot of progress. And so I cut it down. I cut it down to half an hour. I thought, well, I've got a lot of other stuff to do. Um, and we got to th minute 29, and she suddenly started opening up. I thought, oh, shit. So I, I, had, to, I had to decide what was important. And what was important for me was working out where this gross obesity came from, if it was an emotional cause. And so I went back to an hour. Very significant. Because she must have concluded, this man isn't going away. So then she said, <laughs> when I was six, did I ever tell you a story? When I was six, my mother took me upstairs with the brothers and sisters, shut the bedroom door, pushed the furniture up against it, and my father came up the stairs with a hatchet, bashed holes in the door, said, I'll bloody kill you all. I said, no, you didn't. And that's, it's the dog that didn't bark. 
For nine months, she never told me. And that's because she couldn't tell herself. So in that nine months, I'd built up such trust, and now see, uh, that she was able to overcome the barriers that she'd built up to, for self-protection. Because we used to argue. She said, the hatch is still there, you fool. I said, no, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. So arguing on that. And, and the reason it was so significant for me and why I was so confident was her father had died four years before. He was part of the family doctoring that I'd done. So it's a unique situation. And, and it took that long. And that dedicated, and also what I will say at this point is, it was all on the NHS. I didn't charge her and she didn't pay me. Now, if there'd been a financial motive, either benefit to me or cost to her, it would have interfered. But it was just purely clinical research, which is very difficult to obtain these <laughs> days. But it breaks. So then I thought, wow, what happens is that the person themselves blocks the one crucial event and they can't describe it. And later, I, I, I dealt one or two other patients with it, and there was one woman who um, I was talking to her, and at that time I had a quite elaborate phrase. I said, hello, parent, I'm terrified of you. I don't need to be, I'm an adult. So she said, she, she, I said, she said an empty chair, sit, sit. I can't remember, one more dad, sit, your mama there. And she, went, and she turned to me, and she said, oh, and she repeated it verbatim to me, there. And then, Instantaneous, bonk, gone. In the presence or the fear of, a, of a, one parent or other. And that's the key. So what you have to do is to establish a powerful bond, a trustworthy bond. Because if you're weak, then the abuser will eat you for breakfast. If you're strong, you'll just repeat the abuse, unless they can trust you. You have to have the confidence that there's something really serious going on and you can tell by whatever they've done, murder obviously, serial killers, whatever it is, uh, you can tell by the size of the aberration that something serious has gone wrong. Mm. Because what I learned in Parkhurst was that these psychopaths so-called had all been born lovable, sociable and nonviolent. Mm. And something which they couldn't tell you had gone wrong. And eventually they could tell you. That was actually the model that Bob was taking into Parkhurst. I took that model into But Parkhurst. he didn't actually know it would work. Um, but it was the model he was absolutely convinced would work, but we didn't know, and I didn't know. And I remember when I said, when I remember saying to you, um, well, if your model's right, it'll work in Parkhurst. It'll work with the most dangerous, the most severe, the most damaged people. So... And it'll work, yeah. And if it works in Parkhurst, it'll work anywhere. Did you have any fears of Bob working with people who murdered people? Uh, yes, I did. I mean, <laughs> I've written about my fears in my in in the book and how and how I approached it, and um, how 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 I managed to be all right with it somehow. And, and basically, I remember saying to Bob at one time, I actually need to see the men. I need to, I need to see. What's happening? I what actually happens? need to see How it the men works. so I can, I, can, I can trust that what Bob's doing is okay. Because Bob knew, Bob knew he could trust himself and he knew his model, but I didn't. 
So I did go into the prison and talk to some of the men and, and see them. Um, and I described what I saw. I think, I think at this point we have to say why I went to Parkhurst in the first place. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, I wouldn't have gone uh, if Sue's college friend hadn't married the then governor. John Marriott <laughs> was the youngest governor of the flagship prison, which Parkhurst was in those days. He was the youngest governor and he was liberal. And um, we visited in February of 91, family friends. He says, come down, we've moved to uh, Isle come and have a look. So I thought, well, if we don't go, it's back and beyond, we'll never go. So we went. And over the weekend, um, his, uh, he said to me, he said, well, um, we're looking for a psychiatrist. I thought, yeah, well, you would. Who wants to work in a dungeon? Uh, but he was conversing with his brother-in-law and other people there, and he sounded liberal. So I thought, well, having decided never to work in a large institution because they're toxic, I thought, well, I'll make an exception if I know the man at the top. So when they start yanking my chain, I can say, John, come and sort, you know. <laughs> so that's how we went. Well, it isn't exactly how we went because... Um, <laughs> Bob went down to see the prison and um, John and the prisoners and then he rang me up and I was working at the university in Manchester then and he rang me up in my um, office there and um, he said I think I might have to work here <laughs> and I thought will you, will you come and see you see so um, I thought uh, yeah, I mean, Bob never says an idle word, uh, so I knew it was serious. He really would, and that. Uh, so I went, I went down, and I went into Sea Wing, and I uh, um, saw so, saw so the men. When you say the men, what class of prisoner were they? What categories and what crimes? Uh, they were all men. Uh, basically, Sea Wing was set up for the psychiatrically disturbed, dangerous, extremely violent men that, that uh, Broadmoor couldn't handle. So they were too dangerous for Broadmoor. Wow. So... Um, it had been going about five years then. Yeah. And it followed uh, some serious riots in Manchester in the 80s, early 80s, and they thought, it's a nice idea, we'll take the ringleaders out so that to cut the risk of, um, and put the ringleaders in the special units. So this was, a, the, the, I think there were four or five special units at that time around the country, Hull and various places, and Parkus was the top of the pile. So was yeah. Alan Lord in there then, because we had him on. He was one of the strange ways rioters. No, or was this before that? No, they had. They were all deemed psychiatric uh, problems. Uh, you the know, qualifications the, for admission oh, were. I mean, I described the the drugs they were on when we first went in, and they they were just lines of sort of uh, zombies. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I went I went down. We, we, really, the misery was just. Palp, uh, the misery and the and the sort of threat. It was it was a bit like um, they were so guarded. It was just like an explosion could happen any minute. But most of the time, it was just bored bored misery. But what did happen on that occasion, and I still wonder whether I'd have made a different decision um, if this hadn't happened. Um, 
we were wa walking down 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 the wing and I was sort of hanging back sort of looking round and um, this young man clattered down from the ones uh, down the right, down the metal staircase um, he wore a blue jumper and sunglasses I remember and <laughs> took his sunglasses off uh, walked straight up to me past the governor past, past, the, the, past, past all these others um, took his sunglasses off and said will you let him come incredible will you let him come and I uh, I just thought the, the appeal was just so I just um, see what, what happened I was. just sort of slightly nodded and he was satisfied and he went back up the no. And that's, um, um, and I, I just, um, so, you know, a year later, I took an early retirement deal from the university and, and went, went back to join Bob. Because what, yeah. what, I'd, what I'd done is that in the February went down and we had this chat, and then I visited the 1st of May. I'd promised to visit John's prison in Lewis when he was governor there, and I never got around to it. But I thought, all right, then I'll, I'll go. So I went in the 1st of May. And they were just shuffling like the backwards of the uh, psychiatric wing when I did my training, or like general practice patients. I thought these aren't people. No, with not quite they like. A, they haven't got a tail. I'll, 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 I'll come back again. So I came back again, and and then uh, rang Sue and said, um, "I might have to work here." <laughs> Did you think I'd say no? Yeah. No, of course not. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, no. I had, I'd made this breakthrough as I thought that the person in front of you is the main problem. <laughs> they have all the problems of the symptoms and so on, violence and stuff. But they are they they they're, they've got the barrier, and until you remove the barrier, you're not going to get anywhere. So you're going in to test this out. What was your initial challenges? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, one of the challenges was with the uh, staff, the officers, right? So I go in there and I said, I want to be called Bob. Oh no, you're Dr. Johnson, you're Dr. Johnson. I said, no, I'm not. <laughs> because the, one of the problems is the parental figment or the parental image from the past is, is the one where, where all the damage is. So I'm not an authority, I'm an emotional plumber. I'm on their level helping them to deal with it. Sometimes I couldn't make that uh, bridge, but where I could, that's what I was. I was. I was looking at the problem with them, not at them or putting them down. I was trying to grow them up emotionally. So there was a big discussion about that. I said, oh, all right, Dr. Bob. So they said, all right, Dr. Bob. So we compromised. <laughs> and what's really curious is in the interview with my star uh, prisoner, Lenny, he said, if you'd call yourself Dr. Johnson, I'd have nothing to do with you. <laughs> so I was confirmed. But I mean, that's right. I'm not solving the problems. I'm giving them a treatment so they can solve it. And it's like any educator anywhere. I can do maths. I can do this. I can do that. But unless I transfer the skill, you haven't done anything. Mm. So back to the first uh, week. I started on July the 1st. It was a Monday, 1991. And by Thursday, I'd interviewed all the prisoners on Sea Wing, which is my only technical job. Um, I'd interviewed them all, all the ones that agreed to see me, because I only saw them by consent. The officer said, shall we send them in? Shall we send them? No, no, I said, if they, if they, don't, if they don't consent, I don't want to see them. 
they consent or not. That's up to them. So I'd, I'd got my notes and I'd finished on the Thursday. And on the Friday, the mischievous governor, John Marriott, said, right, now, Friday morning, I want you to go to the SEG and see Charlie Bronson. Nothing to do with me. Quite a different area of the prison. Nothing, not my responsibility at all. <clears throat> I don't see, I don't know what was in his mind. Well, I do, I'll, I'll come on to that. <laughs> so there was, a, there was a, a, a table, which wasn't quite wide enough in the event, um, a large room and a very muscular officer looking through the glass door. I'll be in if there's any trouble. I thought, hmm, fun chance. So we're chatting on, and I got on very well with Charlie until right at the end, or towards the end, I put a foot wrong. I don't, can't remember quite what it was. It was something to do with, uh, um, I think he said uh, he had had some sort of epilepsy, and I said I, I didn't take a lot of notice of it. So he said, so he grabbed, reached across, grabbed my entire notes. These are my notes, he said. I said, just the top two, Charlie. So he peeled off the top two, handed my, my week's work, handed it back to me, and then shredded it up into postage-sized things. And <laughs> he says that in one of his letters. It's astonishing. It's not, and and, and, and the, the upshot from that was, um, uh, 10 years or so later, his solicitor said, could I have uh, the references when you first examined him? I said, well, they're all in a, a waste paper basket on the other one. What I did then with Charlie was establish him mm -hmm. as, uh, as an equal in that sense mm -hmm. and somebody who could mm -hmm. help him. I wrote, I wrote about that incident in, in the book and how um, you know, scared I, I actually was when I realized uh, you know, that Bob had been sent in to sit with Charlie on his own without any, you know. Anyway, I, I wrote about it and what, and what happened. So years later when I finished writing the book, I, I sent a draft to Charlie because I wanted um, to see what he thought about it. But I was a bit nervous because I thought he might not like what I'd written or anything. Anyway, he, um, he, he his response absolutely staggered me. Mm -hmm. And he wrote, he wrote quite a few letters back to me. And one of the things he said... Um, was that we, we inside don't often think of those over the walls and how they're suffering. And, um, you know, he said it's a really, that perspective, he said, is really important. And, yeah, I wish I brought the letters in because I could have written, read out some of those. But, but uh, and then he, he's written a foreword to the book. Fantastic! It's yeah. Amazing. yeah, yeah, and um, and how he's retained his humanity and also empathy because he said um, you know, it was realistic what I was writing about uh, my fears. Mm. Bob could have come home in a body body bag. He said, you know, yeah. uh, because he knew. And um, really important to me that that the men, as it were. Um, could relate to what I'd written. Uh, so, you know, when Charlie showed me, they, they could. Which leads to my next point then. So we have a lot of viewers in America. And in America, if you're going to access the highest security, most dangerous prisoners, 
It's like when Clary Starling first meets Hannibal Lecter. They're behind a plexiglass screen. They can't access you. You said you're going and sitting down in a room with them with no guard? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not having uh, people eavesdrop on confidential stuff. No. But what about the risk to yourself of doing that? You, you, you're going into an unknown. Well, it's very curious. Or obviously, I'm a general practitioner, some experience in psychiatry, and I'm going in there. And after about 12 or 18 months, you learn to read violence. They start, whatever it's going to be, and you learn to read it. And my most dangerous prisoner, no question, was Robert Maudsley. And uh, I met, I saw him on my first trip round. He was in a single cell, and he was a gaunt, Moses type feel, long hair, miserable as sin. Could you explain to the viewers what Morsley's crimes were? Mors Robert Morsley was, in fact, at that time, probably the most dangerous prisoner in the prison system. He was a serial killer, had been a serial killer, and um, had killed, I think, four times in prison or something like this. And uh, no understanding, either on his part or on the, on the system. So I noted him. He was actually in Parkhurst when I first went in 91. And he was on the hospital wing. He wasn't in sea wing. But uh, at that time, you weren't allowed to. You couldn't go in and sit with him at all. I, I, no. I spent, I spent uh, it was unusual for me, for I spent sure. a, um, <laughs> a diplomatic uh, campaign with the uh, chief medical officer. So I had a, a coffee morning with him every morning. And gradually... I was working to get permission, his permission to see Robert Morsley. So it's a great ambition. And um, I thought, well, you know, give it a go. If, if I can reach him, I've got to reach him. And um, <clears throat> so I'm, I'm passing through the hospital on another occasion, and he's got these wire mesh things. And um, uh, we start chatting, and he says, if I had a friend who uh, had this sort of problem, what would you do? I said, well, I would talk to your friend, you know, this sort of stuff. We knew what we were talking about. it, And I said, would you be interested? And he said, well, my friend probably would be interested, this sort of thing. So uh, that was the background to it. Then I got to the chief medical officer's permission. And um, I sat, the prison cell was, what, 10 feet by six, something like that, and the bed's there and the door's here. So I sat on the end of the bed near the door and he's at that end. And uh, he says, my, my hands are getting sweaty. And I said, if you frighten me, I can't help you. Now that was a breakthrough for me. I was probably 18 months there because it meant I had confidence in my, on my behalf that I had something to offer and it could help him. Uh, so he calmed down. But that was the case. I said, I'm near the door. I'm out of the door before you can get off your bed, you know. <laughs> and, and so he went. And he was making sterling progress. We'd probably get on to him, but we were making incredible progress. We were unpacking his appalling childhood. How did you break the ice with him then? What you do is you, as it were, lay things out on the table, see which way they pick up. And uh, he used to get very uh, agitated. He said, I think he had something, something like sort of, I have a protector and he's coming in now, he's getting, uh, so I said, I'll back off. And we got it gen gently. Um, and do you want me to come again? All by consent. Do you want me to come again? All right then. And we did, I think, monthly to begin with and then gradually more. Um, 
and uh, I've got some notes from him. And um, he eventually said, I see these things quite differently than a few months ago. So you build a bond. Yes. And then you get them jointly, you and him, to examine the trauma. Is that how it works? Mm. Yeah. Mm. What, what, what happens is they, they, put the, sorry, they put the trauma in a box. Yeah. And they're the only people who can open the box. Now, if they open the box prematurely, that's the end of them. It's, they're dead. They're dead. So they don't open the box. Now, my message them, the box is empty, you know. The box is empty, you know. The box is empty. Do they trust you? Do they believe you? Oh, well, that wasn't so bad. That wasn't so bad. Whoo! Um, if you can open the box and blow it all away, it goes 100%. But there's all this, exactly. There's a whole lot of stuff in between. And um, it's a skill. You go in there and you read the signs that they're pushing you back. So you go back and you put it into um, um, third person or you, 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 you dilute the message. Uh, but basically what I want them to do is to, and I've developed it more since, is to say, you can't do that anymore. I'm an adult, whatever it was. I don't, I'm not interested in what it was. You can't do that anymore. I'm an adult. And they don't believe that. They do not believe that things have changed from the age of two or the age of three or whatever it was. They do not believe it. I mean, so that's, a, that's a, an insight on my part that I have to convey to them. So I have to say, <laughs> you're a grown lad. There's only two people in the room. What's happening? Are you frightened? Yes, I am, yes. Well, why? There's only two of us here. Really? Try it. And as they try it and then see the benefit, they're opening the box a little bit, and then they see that it's safe to open the box. And I'm supporting them all the time. In fact, the, the dialogue with Lenny, which is in my book, the dialogue with Lenny says, yes, well, that's because you're here. So I said, well, what role am I playing? What am I doing here? You're giving me, you're giving me, and I say moral support, and he says power, we overlap. But he's right, I'm giving him power. I'm empowering him. Well, I'm revealing his adult power, really. I'm not giving that he's got, he's an adult and he has the power, but I'm insisting that he has and I'm insisting that he looks at it. And so in that uh, video, which is available on, on the web, um, of the, the first 11 minutes of, that I was able to video Lenny, you can see him changing. So I say, right, if your mother's over there, what would you say? I don't tell him what to say, very crucial. What do you say? He said, well, well, mother, I'm an adult and you can't batter me anymore. So I say, because I'm cheeky, do you believe that? And he says, partly. For goodness sake. Now that's in a nutshell. A, he knows what he should be able to do. B, he knows he can't do it. And he's telling me a really humiliating thing. Now, in order for him to do that, he has to trust me implicitly, trust me that I'm not going to say, oh, or mock him or anything, but I'm there and I'm, I'm showing him. So I, I chide him and later on in the same interview, right, see, mum's there, what are you going to do? Oh, sure, I will, I'll tell her. And he winds himself up. Now, that's what you need. You need courage to face down the demons from the past. Because all the 50 murderers I worked with all killed a parental figment. The, they didn't, people say, first of all, you ask them, and they have no idea. 
They gave guff. Oh, well, the red mist came down. Oh, well, he had it coming. No, rubbish, rubbish. It's a parental figment or somebody who stands in lieu of a parental pigment. Mm. Um, somebody or who abused them. Somebody who's either did the abusing or is exposing them to the abuse again, whatever it is. Um, I mean, if you go on to Harold Shipman eventually, uh, if I'd had a chance to uh, poke him about, I would find that somewhere in his past, he was terrified of a strong female figure. So therefore, his remedy was to kill strong female figures. That's how the thing was manifesting itself and how it would stop manifesting itself if I'd said, look, what do you do with these strong friends? Just hold your hand and say, go away. I mean, you can't do that anymore. I don't know what it was. Um, and you can't be specific what it was. Sometimes it's uh, um, something that other people wouldn't notice. But the child thinks this is the end. And they close down. Uh, I've recently called it sort of an, uh, an emotional anaphylactic shock. It's like uh, an allergy. You go, funk. And you're, um, uh, just as your antibodies attack you when you have anaphylaxis to some uh, uh, allergen, uh, this is a self-defense mechanism that's gone wrong. You go, crunch. Mm. And your frontal lobes go offline. Your speech center goes mm. offline. You cannot mm. talk. You cannot think, you cannot verbalize. And it's the verbalizing that does it. I've got this uh, book out now called Verbal Physiotherapy, which you go in and say, well, how much can you manage? Ooh, well, I can manage a bit, fine. Do you think it should, they should do this? You put it in the gentle terms and then you graduate so that you get to the stage with, with Lenny. I mean, it was wonderful because he changed. I started, <clears throat> I started, <clears throat> I started in July um, I managed to get around John Marriott, uh, the governor, to take the video camera in, in uh, September. And by November, Lenny was out the other side. Mm. I said, okay, yeah, and I've got, I've got dialogue of the, of the 11th, November the 11th interview. I say, okay, Lenny, your mother's coming across to hit you. What are you going to say? Now, if I'd said that to begin with, he could well have exploded, would could have stopped me. Uh, violently or whatever, but he had to stop the conversation. But so when I'm confident, so I said, okay, Lenny, your mother's coming across. What are you going to say? Because I'm a nice middle class chap and I expect this. I wouldn't say anything. I just hold her hand. Total confidence. You can't do that anymore, mum. I'm an adult. Reality. And the whole thing's gone. His violence has gone. His. Uh, um, this ease, his unease is gone, he's calm, he's collected, and uh, he's through. And he's, and he's off all, all this psychiatric drugs he was on. In wow. In February, I, I Violence started, goes down, the drugs go down. I, I, started, I started working in the July. In the February, he tried to come off this fortnightly injection. So when I came in, I said, so what's your, what medication are you on? I'm on this injection. Don't take it off, doctor. No, no, I took that off in February. Oh, I don't, no, don't stop that. Oh. So I said, Charlie, you're in charge. Whatever you say, I'll keep prescribing it until you agree to come off. So it came off. And there's a contrast. You see the video in September, and he's just a little bit slurred. Not a lot, just a little bit. And then uh, November, it's gone. He stopped the drugs, stopped everything. So with the time it takes to bond, for example, with Maudsley, right. how do you know the bond is established enough to start looking at the box together? You send out little feelers. 
Feelers. Little feelers, you say. So what would you say if somebody else did something or other? I put it in third person. Uh, you get skilled at bringing up little bits mm -hmm. and you watch how he reacts. And if he buys a bit, I mean, he's, he's, actually, he's actually very, very good. I mean, I think I've got a bit of his dialogue here. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, give us an example. That'd be great. It's interesting. I needed to see, so I sat and, and looked at some of the videos and I, I described what I actually saw. As, and um, uh, an amazingly intense experience. Yeah. Um, it's truth, trust, and consent. That was the sort of soup in which it all swam. If that wasn't there, they couldn't even begin mm -hmm. to start nibbling, nibbling away at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I mean, for example, here. Uh, I've numbered the lines and I've just taken them fairly at random because um, I don't want to breach clinical confidentiality, but these are in his favour, so I justify that. So here, line 15. Hang on there, though, Bob. We're still going too fast, he's warning me, you see. Because what you're wanting to do, you're wanting to get into the room and feel the emotions of the child wanting to do that. But we realise there are certain hazards in actually doing that. But how will we still get there, right? So he's, mm. he sees how going too fast has riled him up. And yet he's very, that's very clear what we're about. Mm. And he knows he can't yet do it. He's so engaged. He's, he, see, we're, yeah. on, a, we're on, a, on, a, on a joint project. Mm -hmm. So yeah. here's line 23, Morsley. It's going well. Me. Yes, it is, isn't it? It's going well, it's going well, he says. And then line 29. Um, this is incredible, this one. I'm able to talk about things a lot more, a lot more things today than I was able to, you know, six or nine months ago. That's gold. Wow. That's solid gold. And then line 36, Dr. Bob. What I say is, I get the rational mind to sort out the irrational mind. And that's basically today's reality sorting out yesterday's or childhood reality. Now, that's an intellectual challenge. It's a rational challenge. And he buys mm -hmm. it. He buys it. And this is line 39. He says, and I think that's quite good, quite powerful, Bob, in terms of some... It's inaudible, love it. You can turn around and say, okay, quite a lot of bad things have happened to us you know, and we've done quite a lot of bad things, you know, bad things, etc. But at the end of the day, this is incredible, you should come clean with our consciousness and our spirit and our souls to the extent we can turn around and say, okay, let's be reborn again and go through all the experiences we've done out the other end, right at the end. And be satisfied, like you're saying, Bob, like that, that there are no blocks that we don't turn around and say, oh, well, that period was particularly nasty. Let's forget about it. Now, that's him summarizing it. Wow. You can see how it works. Yeah. Unfortunately, what happened was that the prison service saw him changing, shipped him out. Mm -hmm. Yes. He's now, in, he's now in the glass cage. He said, he said to me, the, the yeah. story was that he was going on a 12-week holiday and they'd bring him back. But they lied. 
They had no intention of bringing him back. So the trust is shattered at that point, is it? Uh, well, no. I mean, I, I, I with, treat with him system, now. I treat system, him today. The I treat him, but the system couldn't yeah. take the idea that, uh, that Morsey was getting better. And now he's on uh, in a glass cage in Wakefield, six officers uh, on lock. And is he able to communicate with you through the mail? He, uh, not with me, but I think his it brother gets in touch. And I'm in, I'm in contact with his um, nephew, Gavin. And we have a, um, a joint wish for a documentary to uncover all this. Because I've got four hours of audio, mm. four hours of audio of my um, sessions, which I've just taken extract from. Um, and I was moving on to uh, video with his consent. I hadn't mm -hmm. got there, and I, one of the uh, audio recorders said, well, you can see the lens cap is on, so there's no video, and the little red lights showing they, that comes out. And he agreed. I mean, I'm, I'm not moving without consent. I mean, it's abs that was absolutely rock solid. Mm -hmm. And looking back, what the consent does is to empower them. Mm -hmm. It's what I would call now agency. They've never been asked permission before. They've been said, do this, do that, do the other. Prisons, of course, are doing that all the time. Prison destroys agency. And unless they've got agency, they can't stop doing bad things. Mm. But once they've got agency, no, I don't need that. Mm. I, don't need, I don't need the violence. I don't need the uh, addiction. I don't need whatever it is. Once they've got the agency. And so what's happened with the child trauma, the child abuse, the childhood neglect, whichever way you want to put it, is lack of agency in the adult. Lack of self-esteem, self-confidence, self-empowerment. They don't believe it. They don't, they've, they've never, never been taken seriously. I mean, I'm an important doctor, lots of qualifications, and I'm taking them seriously. I'm sitting there, so you want to come see me? No. Fine, that's all right. Yeah, one job, one job. <laughs> Walk around for six months. You come to see me? No. Fat chance. And what doctors normally do is say, uh, treatment resistant, uh, patient refuses to comply with the medical reason. No, nothing. And he wanted to make sure that didn't happen. And then I go and see him. We come to see me again? Come to see me? Yes. What? So he came every week and he revealed the most gross abuse. His father threw him out of the window and oh. But he stuck to it, and he came every week. And we, we started, and then later, this this chap I'm talking about now, <laughs> he said, uh, "Hmm, if I hadn't been talking to you, I'd have killed three times on this wing." And he'd, he'd got a history of killing in the prison before. And I said, "Oh, three corpses? No, only one." And there was this little squid of a prisoner. I shouldn't call him that, but he he didn't because his anger against his father, which would have come out in his mm. murderousness, had gone. Mm. He'd, opened, he'd opened the dock, he opened the box, and the box was now empty. But wow. what an indictment of the prison service. It spent the last 30 years creating special cages for these men that Bob was treating. And, so, and, um, <laughs> and waste of resources, waste of... Waste of six, six officers on box. Terrible, terrible for the prison officers to have to look after them in such terrible conditions terrible for the men themselves, terrible for society, total waste of money, total waste of resources, total indictment of, a, of an approach. And I would, I would go and sit in with Morsi today 
So people who are watching this then, who trust yeah. the government, who yeah. trust the system, yeah. are perhaps wondering at this point, what would the motive be if you were getting a, so a serial killer to not be violent and not have to need medication and become a more peaceful person? What would the motive be for the system to take that person away from you and then for his tendencies to flare back up, for example? I'm surmising. I'm surmising. But... Um sort of jealousy in a way they've got the systems for, for dealing with dangerous people so they have to keep the dangerous bit of sort of macho on the part of some of the members of the government but i also have to say that the psychiatry psychiatrists are dead against anything that cures a psychopath why is that well there was a prison inspector's report her majesty inspector of prisons came round and uh, lots of preparation in Parkhurst, October 94. And the um, psychiatrists associated with that agreed to see me on the Wednesday, pulled me out of a, a meeting on the Tuesday, pulled rank and said, the idea is doing any good, it's totally anecdotal. Right? And the prison inspector report came out and I was the only person named and I was slagged off brutally. And uh, other parts of the, of the report said the, the prisoners on Sea Wing, it's, it's very good here. We, we're getting a good time. We can do all these things. Um, Dr. Johnson has to be uh, reprimanded for doing A, B, and C, has to be put on a contract, and all this sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. And later, wait for it, later, I was looking through the um, hospital library, and this man had written this book on psychopaths. And even later, again, when the Royal College of Psychiatry was formed in 1973, he had agitated for a forensic branch, which was later established, on the basis that psychopaths are totally incurable. And here they were changing. If you looked around, the yeah. fact is that in the prison, if somebody's violent or threatened violence, you ring the alarm bell. And because Sea Wing was a special unit and they had research, they sent the um, psychologist over every month to, say, document what had happened. So she wrote down assaults, uh, three alarm bells, literally. And then she got bored because the last three years, there were no alarm bells. There were, on average, there were 20 alarm bells every year. And she said, oh, well, I can't bother coming over. But that proves... Uh, if, you take, if you take the waiting list uh, control, which is what it is, seven years, there's 20 alarm bells every year. And the last three years, zero, none. This is a maximum security wing, people too dangerous for Broadmoor and no violence. So you have to have a particularly blind government and policy and home mm. secretary to see that. Mm. As, yeah, uh, just going to say that... Um, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, where it identifies um, uh, personality and psychopathic disorders. Um, <clears throat> I think they, they call it a um, disorder of personality that they're born with. So this is a medicalization of the born evil mantra. And so the, the two get colluded. Uh, you know, collusion. There's a collusion. They they reinforce one another, um, and I, and I must say as well, um, there's a sort of popular idea that um, 
people, the people, there are certain categories of person that are just born evil. And what can you do? Um, what we found, really, that there are things you can do. That's, that people say. are born sociable, lovable, non-violent, tiny, tiny, just, tiny, tiny babies. They're not born with a personality disorder. Let me jump in there. As a doctor, you go into a situation and you try very, 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 very hard to change people and they, and they say, get lost. You get nowhere at all. You say, well, that's not my fault. It's their fault. In fact, when we were medical students, <laughs> it was a joke that the doctor would make the diagnosed psychopath when his treatment wasn't working. And that's writ large. <laughs> so you can understand the frustration of a well-intentioned doctor going in there, going through the front door, and the person is blocking, as I've described. You can access it by going through the side door, but you cannot do it the front door. You say, well, what was your childhood like? Lovely. It was a lovely childhood. But underneath, that's because they're not telling themselves. Like this woman, I was, I was nine months talking about childhood since she never mentioned the one significant thing. And that was my breakthrough. The fact is that the, the lesion, the pathology, is the blockage. Uh, I mean, what happened 20, 50, or in one case, 80 years ago? One of my patients was 82. What happened 80 years ago should have faded, but it hasn't because it's never been processed. And the reason it's not been processed, it was too frightening. Two friends to think about unaided. Now that's the key, unaided. So my task was to be show I'm here, I understand, I'm not frightened of your dad or your mom or I'm not frightened of what happened and I'm not going to abuse you, I'm not going to, all these things. Um, and if you give them the aid, in that sense, emotional support, mm -hmm. then they open up. And underneath you find that we're actually a social species. Mm. Homo sapiens exists and is not extinct so far because they have cooperate, they, they work together and they plan together. So mm. you're saying then out of all of your cases, none of them were born evil. It was a, they were going after parental figments or people who'd abused them. It was all to do with trauma. There wasn't just anyone purely born evil, had a great upbringing by the parents, but then turned into a serial killer. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible. It's not possible to do that. Um, and 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 one of the one of the ones that was particularly instructive, um, and also a very dangerous man. I call him Alec. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I call him Alec. And he yes, came in. That? He was twenty four when he first came in. And he didn't want to come to Sea Wing. He'd heard about the murder there, and it was a very dangerous place. He wasn't going to go to Sea Wing. And uh, um, uh, as luck would have it, he was seen in reception by a uh, prison officer I'd had a lot of talk with uh, about what I was working at. And um, uh, he, I call him Colin, the officer. And he understood the way I worked. And so he said, it's by consent. This is maximum security prison. He's coming in. Take me to the SEG unit. Take me to the solitary confinement block. Oh, says Alec, I'm not going in there. And he would have come in the unit and been off again and done something to insist because that's what they do. I mean, they know how the system works. So they've punched an officer or something like that and have got himself. So he, he was persuaded to come in. And he said, you don't have to come and talk if you don't want to. Now, that is revolutionary. And Colin had learned that from my technique. You don't have to talk if you don't want to. He told him this. So that reassured Alec that it would be fine. So when he first comes in, unfortunately by that time, this is 18 months into my time there, I'm videotaping everybody who will agree. 
So all of Alex's sessions with me are all on videotape. So in the first session, very revealing. He says, well, uh, I made no secret of the fact I'm going to kill again in prison. He'd already killed in prison. I'm going to kill again in prison, and uh, part of me wants to kill. And as long as it wants to, I will let it. I will kill every two years. When you're uh, falling asleep, you, you, you um, plan your next holiday. When I'm falling asleep, I plan the next murder. And uh, they'll move me on. And so ten, ten, two years later, I'll kill somebody else. I'll kill again, I'll kill again, I'll kill again. I'm not going to stop that. If part of me wants to do it, I'll let it. So uh, I discussed <laughs> his father with him. Nothing. Discussed his mother, nothing. Nothing. Ding, 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 ding. You're coming next week? Oh, oh all right. Oh, all right. So gradually, uh, about sort of 12 months in, uh, I went too far. I said, well, what about your mother? <laughs> so he stopped coming. It was all by appointment, right? I was very proud of that. You've got a maximum security wing. They can't go anywhere else. I make an appointment, 11 o'clock. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> and they, or they don't make the appointment. So he stopped making appointments. So that was his consent, his agency to do that. And I thought, just a minute. And then the rumors started going around that he was uh, garroting his pillow, preparatory to garroting me. So what his plan was, so they said, was that he would suddenly start saying, yes, I'll come and see you again. And as I turned to put my video camera on, which he knew I would do, he would garrot me. So I didn't like the sound of that, as you can imagine. And so I asked around, we had a, a meeting in the morning of all the admin heads, and I asked the chief probation officer, how serious should I take? Very seriously, he said. So I went to see the, <clears throat> the governor. Unfortunately, it was the deputy governor then, not, uh, not, the, not John Marriott. It was the deputy governor who had more agency, in a sense, had more imagination. So I said, uh, um, I, I, I don't even like walking down the wing to get myself a cup of tea. Something has to be done. He said, oh, well, um, I've got a Cate van going out next week. I'll, I'll ship him out next week. I said, not next week. He was winding me up because what he did. And not next week now. So he was as good as his word. Uh, that was the Tuesday. He, he went in on Tuesday evening because he was, he was on the governor, so he goes, and he shifted him out, put him in the, seg the solitary confinement block and said to him, Dr. Johnson will come and see you in the morning. He will report to me, and I will decide what happens next. Now that, the bureaucracy with C-wing admissions were just horrendous, and he was just cutting all the red tape. So the next Wednesday morning, the, the meeting of the admins, he called me over, he said, told me they'd done this, and um, if you go and see him, then you report to me. And uh, So I went to see him. I, well, no, I didn't. I went to the C-wing in my office, doing my papers and stuff, and... There's a knock on the door, and three prisoners came in and said, um, he should really be back here, you know. Uh, one chap was in his 50s, he said, I see myself as 20 years ago, and um, if he goes through the rest of his life sentence, having threatened to kill a psychiatrist, it'll be hell. So I said, oh, yeah, he should really come back. But there was no arm twisting. It was just mm. three of them. These are unempathetic psychopaths who aren't interested in anything. <laughs> they, 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 they were concerned about him. So, so I, I cleared up my paperwork and went to the SEG unit. And I got two 
robust officers on the side. <laughs> and what happens is you open the door and they hear the doors open, they rush out and grab you, you see. So it's like they sort of stood back and <laughs> opened the door and he's sitting on the, on the cell bed, crestfallen. Right? So I went and sat next to him. He said, I shouldn't have done that. I need to be back in the steering. So I said, well, I'll report on the deputy governor and he will decide whether to come back or not. So I did, and he did, and then we continued. Uh, probably six, nine months later, he reports a visit of his mother, and I've put the dialogue in the book, it's just astonishing. His mother says, according to him, um, you've changed. There's a seriousness in your face now. Not all teenager anymore. I have to respect you more. I have to admit that I've been too close and I've mothered you too much and this sort of stuff, so it's partly my fault, but you're different. I can get on with my life now. Mm -hmm. and, he, and Alec himself said, I've given up violence. I don't need violence anymore. Oh, if somebody attacks me, I would defend myself, but uh, I'm not planning anymore. So I've saved a death every two years. Wow. And in fact, I, I met uh, Lord Ramsbottom, the uh, ex-prison inspector at a House of Lords uh, meeting one time. And I said, I'm, I'm, I'm writing this book. Um, I'm thinking of writing a book in which I claim to have saved over a dozen lives. He said, I'm sure you have. Hmm. But unfortunately, he wasn't in office anymore. And the, and the, and the support I've had from uh, the establishment is zero. Well, the policy is opposite, isn't it? Yes, it is. You just lock them up and... Uh, it's it's um, a, popular, a popular thing. So yeah. there were two other occasions when killers planned to kill you? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> um, one of them was... Um, Um, I don't quite know how to describe him. Um, I was going to say ill-disciplined, most of them were, but anyway, strictly ill-disciplined. And I was talking to him, and uh, I came in from lunch break one time, and they said, oh, this chap's really going for you now. He said, he's going to pull you from limb to limb. He says, nobody talks to my mum like that. I'm going to really go So the officers were delighted. This was very early on. I was just about sort of two or three months. So um, they have, we had to meet in the main prison wing office. And fortunately, the, the table was much wider. And I sat this side. And sitting next to him was this woman officer. I said, you're sitting next to him. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, she knew there was absolutely no threat to her. I didn't know that. I was totally new to it. And uh, so um, uh, I, they, 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 they didn't really take his threat seriously, but he, it sounded bad. He was going to pull me limb from yeah. limb. And so he talked about it then. And he actually started coming to see me again after that. But uh, that, was, that was one threat. What was in his box then? Oh, we never really opened it, actually. Mm. And he's one of the tragedies because uh, even though I was a psychiatrist on the special unit, uh, there was lots of machinations in the background. And at one stage, he was shipped out into the hospital wing, uh, which I wouldn't have approved of if I'd been consulted, but he was shipped out of the hospital wing. So I went to visit him there. 
and um, he didn't want to see me. So the relationship had broken and he ended in tragedy because he actually managed to hang himself. Oh dear. Mm -hmm. uh, so we never really got any further with him. And in fact, I think possibly uh, his suicide in the hospital wing spooked the uh, chief medical officer. Broke mm -hmm. him. Well, it's terribly difficult. He should, should never have gone out. But I mean, I didn't have the authority, you know. I mean, I'm the doctor on the wing, but that was part of the trouble. <laughs> they were sort of macho against him. To, mm middle management and the upper management and they shipped him out they shouldn't have shipped him out but I, I tried I went over to visit him and I couldn't establish a, a relationship then who was the third death threat from the third one's um, a chap with long hair I can't remember I can't remember the details of that but he he was he, he threatened to to kill me or threatened, yeah and um, we never really started with him and that was the reason that, and uh, he was cleaning in the in the wing down there, and they told me about it. Uh, the officer and I had to go past him to get through the door. They said you can go this way, you can go the back way. I said no, no. I went along and said, "Come on, he said, I don't want to talk to you." I said, "Fine, <laughs> that's fine. I don't have nothing to do with it. Fine, fine." And then they shipped him out, and he wrote, "Yes, I was abused, but I didn't tell you about it." Mm. And uh, that again was fairly early on. Uh, my technique wasn't as sound, and uh, the support wasn't there. Mm. But yeah. they are in charge. It's their box. They open it or they don't open it. And if they don't open it, it remains closed. And it remains closed for eighty years, or as long as they are there. And it's uh, it's. Not surprising in some circumstances quite how tight that box is because mm. they say to themselves, keep the box shut and you live. Open it and you're dead. And I said, no, you're not. Yes, you are. No, no. Yeah, yeah, no. Ah! It's empty. But to get there, well, it's, it's, it's building up a relationship. It's building up a bond. It's building up a, a very powerful uh, and I mean, I succeeded in uh, quite enough cases. <laughs> I didn't succeed in all cases. Um, I, I, I sometimes, well, I, I know the fact is that if the rest of the staff had all been like Colin, for example, um, and knew what I was doing and supported it and uh, said, well, it's up to you. Now, you can't do that in a prison normally. It's, we're telling you what to do, you'll have your meal now, you won't have your meal now, whatever it's going to be, and that's coercion. And of course, uh, coercion is the opposite of what you need. You need consent, you need to, you need to increase the agency. So when these death threats came to light, were you asking Bob, maybe we should rethink your occupation? <laughs> no, I, ne I never did that. Um, uh, I just... Uh, I got really, I sometimes got really cross <laughs> and stumped around a bit. And um, What was the situation and, that made you the most cross? Well, the, fir the first one with Charlie, actually, I think, because I just thought that was unnecessary peril. Um, and I remember, I mean, I, I described my, re my reactions to that in the book, but... Um, 
the one when a prison officer uh, rang up uh, in the middle of the night and I answered the phone and he said, would you tell Dr. Bob to watch his back tomorrow because, you know, um, H, I think I call him, I call him um, <coughs> in the book, is um, threatening to kill him. And that, re that really worried me. Um, so I woke up, Bob, Bob had gone to sleep. <laughs> and he said, there's nothing to do now. I'll sort it in the morning and went back to sleep. <laughs> and then, you see, I just stomp around the kitchen, you know. And, um, that was Alec. Uh, yes. That was Alec. Yeah, it was, that was. And I was... Um, I was sort of more cross with the, the officers because I thought, well, um, I knew by then the system a bit. And uh, if this had happened and it was, and they knew about it, then the man should have just instantly been put on good order and discipline, gold or whatever they call it, mm -hmm. and it had been shipped off. But I think, I mean, again, this was in, it's the early days that were the most perilous from the men's point of view. Later on, it was from the officers, and then later on, it was from the home office, and later on, it was from psychiatrists. So we had loads of different perils. But um, looking back, the, le the men actually were the least of it, really, because they could recognize the lack of bullshit in Bob, and that's uh, protected him quite a lot That's true. And, they, and they understood that and they um yeah, and, and, and they have a bullshit meter you know yeah. incredibly well attuned somehow mm -hmm. um it's but hard, hard uh, yeah so so i was really anger ang angry with the the officers uh, i suppose i don't know i was just you know why am I in this situation being woken up at night? Oh, bah, bah, bah. And stamping around the kitchen. I remember making hot milk for myself and grating my knuckles and all sorts of stuff. Mm. And, being, but, and uh, yeah, but you weren't, you thought you could sort it, you see, but I didn't have the control of sorting it. I, I was just um, the recipient of it. So it was. Well, I, I could evaluate the, the things. You could evaluate, were, yeah. and, I, but, and I, I trusted you could sort it, but. And you take the episode. You might not. <laughs> no. Take the episode with Alec, for example. I go into the office, and and the three prisoners come through, and uh, one of them, in fact, it was the chap with the blue jumper. He was the Baron on the wing. He's he said he'd have to get past me, and I thought, well, that wouldn't be terribly difficult. <laughs> but I mean, you know, so there was a lot of um, forces on my side in in the in the, um, the in the in the prisoners, and and eventually um, they said they said, oh, don't tell me about your sex abuse. Go and tell mm. Doctor Bob. What's mm. the matter with you? Sort of thing. So mm. that was that was that was a very useful thing. Yes, I made the mistake once of sort of picking up a book about you know, notorious true crime prisoners or whatever and some of the faces I recognized leaping off the pages which so, ones did you recognize oh yeah and the, there were some gruesome gruesome should, murders should, that were I describing should, I, should, I should I should say that John Marriott 
was exceptional. No question at all. Yeah. And had he not been there, in fact, Sue says the dedication. I've dedicated the book to John. The, the fact is, he was, he was, he, he was, I, I decided not to work in a large institution ever. Mm. And he persuaded me that it, it was, like I've said. So that's, that's important. The second thing is, he tried. He tried very hard. And he had barbecues in a prison yard, maximum <laughs> security prison wing, at which Sue was invited, and she didn't sign the efficiency contract or anything. <laughs> well, I'll describe that in there. I mean, and the barbecue got, is rather a... And mm. she got, and she got <laughs> to euphemism. know... She got to know significant people, significant prisoners, on first-name terms. And I must tell a wonderful story. She, <laughs> she, she gets to know them there. And then um, the one time I was hit in the prison was again to do with the, with the hospital you see because i'm out of my normal surroundings and the con consent doesn't actually apply so i went to see this chap in the hospital wing and um he was hallucinating two foot size images of his dad coming through the wall so the officer said we can't understand he's sleeping on the floor there's these two bunk and he's sleeping on the floor and that he was saying so I started talking about his dad and um, instead of saying I don't want to talk about my father now he punched me Boom. not hard but just to stop me so I went out and the officer was very good he said do you want to, do you want to, do you want to prosecute do you want to? I said no I should have I should have, uh, I should have read the situation yeah. better it's my fault <laughs> so this this one particular chap who uh, he was a lovely lad in many mm. ways. And as I well, say, I call him the baby of the wing, in, in yes. uh, which he, he and was. Then, and then later we moved to York, a number of different reasons. And Sue is visiting the prison with a group of Quakers from the Quaker meeting. And um, they say, no, when you go in there, no first name terms, no, no hugging, no stuffing, no, no, don't, don't exchange any personal views. So all the visitors are on this side of the, of the, of the room and they wheel the uh, prisoners along here. Up jumps one of the prisoners, rushes across, hugs Sue and says, my psychiatrist's wife. <laughs> now this is a psychopath no empathy no sympathy no and he and then he says this, I'll let Sue take it after a bit um, I'm awfully sorry I hit Bob this year. I hope he didn't <laughs> well, you no know, he said will, it, will, will Bob forgive me oh. and this, uh, you know and he'd been waiting for years and years wow. for an opportunity because after we left Parkhurst Bob wasn't allowed to contact no. any of them just, and, and, and he said, uh, Sue said to him, no, Bob said it was his fault. But she was. I've just said he was. I mean, you go in the situation and you ask a, 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 a loaded I, question. Must say, I didn't like it when you came home and this was all swollen. <laughs> he did, it wasn't uh, that well, to hurt me in a sense. I mean, you know, well, could, could, it, could, it, could have, it could have been a lot worse, could have been obviously. Worse, but I mean, uh, but he it wanted, still he, didn't he wanted look to nice. make a point. But I mean, he was saying uh, physically, uh, I don't want to talk about my dad. And he couldn't verbalize that. And I should have, uh, shouldn't have, uh, but as I say, again, looking back, it was the fact that it was in the hospital outside my normal territory where I wasn't, uh, uh, I could empower them with a consent on the other and it wouldn't have come through the door. So far then, I am familiar with your method and you've talked about serial killers and killers 
But let's add a bit more complexity to this then, because he's talking about the you know the killing a parental figment. What about people who kill kids, like Ian Brady, John Venables, a kid who kills an even younger kid? All that be. How would you, uh, if you were in front of those people, how would you handle that situation? Is it the same technique, or is there something extra going on for them to be killing children? This opens a lovely area, a very critical area. Once the frontal lobes are blocked, the normal thinking processes are also blocked. They can function perfectly adequately everywhere else. Mm. Comes into the area of concern, the box, as I've called it. And that could be anything. And it could come out in any way because you're not thinking straight. So Lucy Letby, for example, is killing babies. Now, how does this work? Well, the reasoning has gone, and I haven't spoken to obviously, but what I would look for is something like, I'm saving them from worse, or some other such nonsense. It's non-thinking. It's acting because there's a drive, there's the fear, there's the hate, there's the anger against the parental figment, but it's coming out in any number of, in, an infinite number of names. Human beings are very imaginative and uh, it can come out in any different way. So don't be confused by what actually the, the, the uh, abnormality is. Don't be confused by how the violence comes out. I mean, Hitler, for example, comes out in slaughtering Jews. How does that help? It doesn't, but he's got it in his head that, that I mean, his, his childhood is absolutely, I would go into this in the book, his child is absolutely appalling. And he's got lots of hatred, which he focuses on the Jews. And there's some uh, talk about his grandparents being actually Jewish, and so there may be a connection there. But that's not relevant. The, 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 the mistake to make is to look at the symptom to see what's wrong. No, you look at the fact that the frontal lobes are blocked what's blocking them, which they're not telling you and they're not telling themselves. So they don't know why the frontal lobes are blocked. They're just driven to do it. And that, that's a specific area that you can actually yeah. see yeah. on, 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 on brain, brain scans. scans. Yeah. So if the box is opened, if they're at that point, do they unblock? Yeah. And you can see that on a scan? Well, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting you say that. Um, I detected it clinically. I could see that she couldn't think and that later she could think. And now I've told you this other story of the, of the woman who turns to me unblocked and then blocked. You know, you can see it. The, the, this, the thought processes are frozen. They, 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 they're cancelled, they're paralyzed. So in 1995, a doctor called Dr. Bessel van der Kolk in Massachusetts did some brain scanning works. He calls it the first brain scan works on people with trauma. So he puts them in a brain scan machine and he plays a tape of music, everything's fine. Plays a tape of the trauma, the gunshot, the car crush, whatever it is, and the frontal lobes stop working. The, the, the speech center stops working. It's as if, he says, that they have a stroke. It's as if they've had a stroke. And he calls it speechless terror. Mm -hmm. Now he detected that in 1995, and that's objective, it's scientific, it's reproducible, anybody can do that. Anybody, and there's a possibility that uh, we may be able to repeat this. And I wanted to do that when I worked at Ashworth. And I arranged with Manchester University to bring a, a mobile MRI machine into the prison, I got permission to do it, and then the doctors again cut me off. But 
what it shows is there's neurological evidence for the model I'm using. There's neurological evidence that if the person starts thinking, or as he says, recalling the trauma, the frontal lobes go off. And they can't tell you about it. And because they can't tell you or themselves, it stays with the axe lady. The axe is still there. And I'm arguing with her that it isn't. And if I can persuade her that it isn't, the frontal lobes start working again. So that's a form of neuroplasticity. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But it's a reaction. So her frontal lobes work perfectly well. She was a very competent uh, uh, woman, this woman. Uh, she worked for um, the uh, bankruptcy service and this sort of stuff, which is, and so she worked very hard and very intellectually, and it worked brilliantly. But there's areas of her life where it didn't. And uh, this is the same with, with Robert Maudsley, for example. Uh, he's a very cultured man. He loves Schubert like I do. <laughs> and um, he's a very intelligent man. And um, one of the things I say about Maudsley is, fine, you've murdered somebody, you must pay. And I would employ uh, Maudsley uh, at a high salary because he's got a, go a good brain to that. And he must pay £10,000 a year to each family who's you've deprived a member of or whatever not um <clears throat> lock him up costing the, the the state half a million pounds a year whatever it is it's ludicrous he needs to pay compensation for what he's done and i'm sure had i been able to continue he would have done that so do you get serial killers to the point where they will show remorse it just doesn't arise. It doesn't arise. The, the fact is, they, they, they regret, that's the wrong criteria people use, but it's the wrong criteria. Mm -hmm. I want them to understand why they did it in terms that I understand. Yeah. That's, uh, remorse is, 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 is the icing on the cake. It doesn't matter. They, 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 they regret doing it mm -hmm. and they won't do it again. That's what I'm after. Yes. That's what I'm after. Uh, do you know why you did it? No. Well, then I'm going to keep you here until you do know why. Do you know why you did it? Yes, I did. Yes. My, uh, my father threw my mother downstairs when I was four, and I haven't forgiven him. I said, well, that's a long time ago. That's 20 years ago now, isn't it? Yes. Do you accept that? Yes. And if he accepts it. So, the, the, again, the, the idea of remorse, and is it there or not, is a halfway house. Mm -hmm. It's the best you can do, or a quarterway house. It's much better to say, why did you do it? Tell me why you did it. Oh, you just had it coming. No, that, that, that's not good enough. I want to know precisely why. Mm. And I want to have evidence that the frontal lobes are now back in working order, mm. as they are with everything else. His frontal lobes were perfectly well at planning murder. It's just that the drive to plan it, as I said in his first interview, there's nothing wrong with killing, is what he told me. And there's a lot wrong with killing. I think killing people is a, is a disease. It's a medical disease. And, and he needs to be able to undo that. And that is what matters. It's a medical cure, not remorse. Remorse is flimflam. I want something solid. I want him to explain why he killed. He understands in the same terms I understand why he killed. He has to repeat my model to me and own it. He has to have agency for it. He has to understand where it's coming from, what it's doing, and how to get rid of it. So that when uh, in later occasions uh, somebody imitates or brings back a picture of his dad, shall we say, mm. 
he can recognize this and say, well, no. I mean, what, what, I, what I do in, 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 right across the psychiatric spectrum is to say, um, um, I'm 75, not three. You can't do that to me anymore. Uh, and that works beautifully. Uh, once you get to the stage, they can say, well, no, that doesn't affect me anymore. Like, like Lenny says, I said, your mother's coming to hit you. What are you going to just tell you? Hey, you can't hit me, mum. I'm an adult. I'm twice your size. Mm. You know, you can't do it. No um, block, no reaction, no instinct, no, no tantrum, nothing. Just the reality is, mum, I'm bigger than you. It's over over right the fact it's no longer happening because that's the other breakthrough that the axe was falling all the time the um with alec his dad is throwing his mother down all the time mm. it never stops why should it stop so i say it stopped yeah who are you yeah, yeah, um. uh, oh it stopped and once it stopped there's no, no longer mm. any interest but you know once they've gone through that um uh, they they look at what they've done with a sort of immense sadness. Oh yes, that's true. Um, yeah, sadness. And I, I think, um, uh, and it's sort of like remorse plus. It's it's much yes, more. I, yes, yes, it's yes, much more. I, uh, I just reacted I, to I the... see the that video of, of of Lenny explaining why he killed, and and at the end of it, he said, and then, and I just. I just battered him, he said, and he was just, you know, and I just, just kept doing it. And he just, the, the sadness in his voice that, yeah, yeah. And, and the understanding that why this, this thing came over him. Um, but there's a sort of relief. I feel that there's a relief for them in, in having uh, an explanation yes. and, and owning an explanation for, yeah. for why this thing happened. That's an excuse. Uh, it's an explanation. Because part of the and, and the explanation is a relief for, for it should be a relief for society that we have got an explanation so we can put in prevention, which, you know, it's looking after the kids, you know. Because <laughs> part, part of them does know. I mentioned um, uh, Harold Shipman. He eventually did stupid things that the police to let the police know to interfere. To, so there's part to, of him knows to, to stop it, but are powerless to stop. A bit like an addict, I suppose. Oh, definitely. They know That's the same it's not doing them any good, but they're doing it. An addict, an addict takes drugs to block the frontal lobes even more. The same thing. I have to say about Sue and the videos, her description of the, Sue, of the videos is, is the most acute I've ever had. She looks at them and she describes them. I know you and knew them. Yeah. What, I, what I want to do is to um, hammer home mm. the thing about trauma. I call, I've, I've invented something I call the trauma tetrad. as a four-point thing. Okay, with Lenny. So the first point is, is Lenny an adult? Yes. Can he tell his mother this? No. Should he be able to tell her? Yes. Does he know that his symptoms of violence come from his inability to tell his mother? No. But when he does, they go. That's the four points to apply to Lenny. 
Now you apply them to Alec, right? One. Was Alec's father wrong to throw his mother downstairs? Yes. Can he tell his father this? No. Should he be able to tell his father this? Yes. And did he know this, all his symptoms of serial killing came from his inability to tell his, tell his father? No. But when he can, and when he did, they went. I mean, the idea that what happened a long time ago can still be having a, a devastating effect on you is a difficult concept to grasp. And it's easily mocked, it's easily thrown away. And far too many psychiatrists do that. And they're uh, humiliated because they spend time with people not asking these penetrating questions, these subtle questions, these nuanced questions, and coming away with nothing. And they spend hours or years or whatever, work, 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 and they still come back with the same stupidity, mm -hmm. the same non-thinking, the same block. Well, you called it frozen terror. Yeah, because it's so all it speechless terror, frozen terror. It's, um, it's, 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 uh, you and can your see job that, is dissolving that. Yes, but you can see if you don't have the tools or the insight. Yeah. I didn't have the insight until uh, um, 1986. I knew something was fishy. In fact, <laughs> from a bi 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 biographical point of view, uh, I started in general practice in 1967. And in the early 1970s, I was offered a job teaching in the medical school in general practice. I said, no, no, I'm not, I'm not moving. I, I need, uh, there's something fishy going on here. I, I can't, I don't know what it is, but I'm, I'm going to stay here until I can sort it. Unfortunately, mind you, it was another 10 something years later, I had this particular person who was as dedicated to finding it as I was. And this propitious circumstances, as I say, where um, I could see her without cost to her or reimbursement to me. So there was no financial gain in me extending it or stopping it or whatever, which is absolutely critical. Looking back, it's absolutely critical. And um, had there been a financial disincentive to her, she'd have thought, oh, well, I'm paying as well and we haven't got anywhere. But that wasn't the point. That was the point was we weren't getting anywhere because she couldn't get anywhere. Mm. She couldn't get anywhere. I knew it was something to do with childhood, just as Freud did. I knew it was something to do with childhoods. And uh, here was a golden opportunity for working with somebody equally dedicated, powerful, she was a powerful person, equally dedicated. And I also knew that her father was dead. So he, she would say things like, oh, I can't blame him. I can't blame me, dad. I said, what? He's dead, he can't do anything. So the logic of, not, of her inability to blame her dad today didn't add up. And that challenged me. I thought, well, there's something very fishy going on here. And um, I said, we weren't getting anywhere, so I cut it down to half an hour. <laughs> and uh, we got even less far. And then I went back to now. I thought, well, she must have thought, well, this chap's not going away. He's not. <laughs> and something like that. And also, the fact that, I, I mean, I can remember the decision now, going back to now, and I've got all this medical computing and research to do, and, but uh, you want to try it? Yeah, okay, well, then stick with it. And that, the fact that I came back after that just to made, must have made all the difference. Mm -hmm. And then she came out with it. Now, once she comes out with it, I go, bam. Yeah. Not uh, the fact that he threatened her life with a hatch. The fact that she couldn't 
tell me. I mean, she was working hard with me for those nine months. She was working hard. And I was asking questions and she was, she wanted to know, to know. But she couldn't know. So you're into um, free will and are we machines and all this sort of stuff. Now, fortunately, I'd had a very good grounding in philosophy. And I had decided, actually in 1960, I had actually decided that <clears throat> intent or free will, an element of free will was, or agency, I now call it, was perfectly justifiable scientifically. Because science works on the basis, it's a clockwork universe, all you do is find out the causes and everything will be solved. The one solution fits all. No, <laughs> quite. Uh, and there are various philosophical arguments against that, particularly uh, Hume's skepticism and Immanuel Kant's uh, um, problems with the epistemology, the structure of knowledge. And that convinced me that it's perfectly legitimate to talk about intent. Scientifically, you can talk about intent. It's subjective, you see, and, and everything has to be objective in science. But this is a, an element of subjectivity, which is actually fundamental. And um, uh, I recently read, wrote a whole series of philosophy papers on this, which I've listed in the book, um, 10 in all, with the philosophy journal in, in, in China. And I've gradually developed the, the, the theory, the model, uh, such that it includes Hitler's childhood and Hitler's mm. changes. Mm. But the crucial thing is that you sit down with somebody and they've got an intent. They may be twisted. It may be going the wrong way, it may be upside down, wrong way backwards, but they've got an intent and they want it to be straight. And you have to sell them a package which says, straighten this out and you better think straight. Really? I like one of your earlier aphorisms, which was, uh, parenting keeps infants alive, but adults insane. <laughs> it's true because you go through life saying is yeah. this alright is this alright looking over your shoulder all the time no yeah. you're an yeah. adult now and the parent's got two obligations anybody said recently a small baby I should learn it uh, you've got two obligations bring the child up and bring the child up to be independent now that's very difficult if you haven't been brought up independent yourself and um, a lot of parental anxieties, and a lot of some of them are perfectly justified, uh, come down through the child. So the phrase that answers that is, it takes a village to bring up a child. And with industrialization, a lot of villages have disappeared. So you're brought up in a tower block and you don't meet other people. You don't meet uh, parental um, uh, allies who have a different view of the world and of you. And that's what you need. Um, so childhoods are important. Is there a tipping point with childhood trauma that eradicates empathy for the rest of someone's life? Can that happen? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not going to tell you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but the child, I've spoken to, I don't know, 50,000 childhoods over the years or whatever. The child says, this is the end of me. I'm not going to get through in the next two minutes. Mm. It, it could be totally wrong, could be only fictitious, but if the child sees that, and people got different thresholds, 
And uh, sometimes it's quite obvious. And sometimes it's verbal. I'm going to kill you when I get home and all this sort of stuff. Um, it's the threat to life powerful enough to breach mm. what the child can do. Mm. Again, it's agency. Mm. I can, mean, I, uh, can I do anything to get out of this situation? No. He's much bigger than you and you're in trouble. Um, it's it, That varies right across. You can't say such and such will, will affect this person this particular way. You can't do that. But uh, it's like a leg. You fall over and somebody's got a weak leg and it breaks. Somebody's got a strong leg. It doesn't break. So maybe the same trauma for different people has a different impact. Different, different some outcome. people are picked up and some people aren't. Yeah, but yeah. also, also yeah. Uh, some people, I mean, uh, maybe yeah. it's just a sneer. Mm. I mean, I've got this incredible photograph. I don't know if this is Jermaine, but I've got an incredible photograph of Donald Trump, aged 18. And his father's sneering at him. A bit bigger. But his I, father's I, sneering yeah. at him for the rest of his life. And that's what trouble now. You see, I, I, I've got this sort of picture of the men, as it were, and I think a lot of them were sort of born into concentration camps. You can imagine if you're born into a concentration camp, you're not going to trust anybody with, with anything. Particularly the guards, particularly the people with authority. Is the shutting down of the empathy, is that a mm. protection mechanism? It doesn't arise. You, you, be, 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 everybody's dangerous. Everybody's going to get you. The only way is to hit them first. And and um, uh, empathy is 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 for the birds. I mean, it's just it just isn't available. Mm. And if I can tell you what Alex said, when he really got hold of it, he said, "When you're four, when you have a tantrum, you stamp your foot on the floor." <laughs> When you're 24 and have a tantrum, somebody dies. And then again, he was very insightful young man. <laughs> Despite his um, discrepancy, he, uh, he said, I got married when I was 18. I had everything I wanted. Meals cooked, everything available, laundry done, everything. Everything was fantastic. But I could only talk with my fists. So in order to do that, in order to say that, he's now learned to talk with his tongue. And he can see uh, with great regret, obviously, what he did before. And I'm, I'm sure that's what happens. That's what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. His parents, particularly his dad, had taught him that human beings are violent and you talk with your fists. You don't talk motions, uh, uh, very weak and sloppy and all that sort of stuff. And that's, what he, that's how he summarized it. I could only talk with my fists. And I mean, that's the human tragedy. What's the relationship between psychopathy and narcissism? They're uh, confusion in terms. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're, uh, they're, uh, there's a whole string of lunatic terms, which mean 
Sod all of I mean, nasty <laughs> behaviours. They don't, you know. I mean, yeah. and the same with personality disorder and and sociopaths, and and uh, they're all invented labels by frustrated uh, lexographers. That people <laughs> they they try very hard and they make no progress. Well, so they say, well, it's the patient's fault. It's 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 the so yeah. they, they make wonderful classifications. The whole of the DSM four, the the DSM five is just now the the psychotech is is crap. It's a classification of nastiness, really. And it's not... It's, it's, um, it's and the medicalization of it. Um, yeah, it's not medicalizing helpful. it. No, no, it's yeah. not even medicalizing it. It's, 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 it's well, codifying it in a view, which is you can do nothing about it. These are symptoms people have, so therefore it's a brain change. It's a chemical change. It isn't. It isn't. It's, 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 it's a trauma. People, human beings are born lovable. They're born... Talking, they're born uh, mingling. Their minds mingle. That's what it was, the, the phrase is. Their minds mingle, and they mingle because that's what they're for. I mean, I, I like talking to you. Why? Because you talk to me, and I talk yeah. to you, and we compare notes, and we we have different views, and and I enjoy it. It's a delight because that's what the mind is for: is to verbalize uh, complex issues, sort them out, comment on this, comment on that, and and you're merging them. And that is what life is about. Now, you try and codify that and say, well, you can't do it because you're uh, psychopathic, you're lacking empathy, you're not no remorse. You're missing the point. Hmm. Well, it's just an observation. It's just it's observational. It's, it's just descriptive. descriptive. It, it isn't an analytic. It isn't yeah. therapeutic. It isn't a diagnosis. A diagnosis in medical terms should give you a clue what's gone wrong and what to do about it. Now, diagnosis in the uh, current psychiatric terms is entirely descriptive. Ah, now, you've been depressed. Uh, have you been depressed six months or 12 months? Oh, good, 12 months. <laughs> crap. Crap. Absolute crap. Have some meds. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. before you leave. Yeah. Yeah. What, what is a wonderful description. Uh, psychiatrists call them prescription jockeys. Yes. You go in there mm. and they're mixing the things. And they say, didn't it work? Oh, double the dose. Oh, it didn't, and that was the thing with ECT, shock treatment. The first series didn't help, so you give them some more. And you give them so many, it damages the brain. Why are most serial killers male? They aren't all. But most are. They aren't all, and it depends on your definition of serial killers. I mean, you can call Lucy Letby a serial killer. Yeah. She was a serial baby killer. Uh, and um, one of the podcasts we saw of yours, she's in for a terrible time in the prison, which is a reflection on the prison service. She should not have jungle justice. But anyway, so um, the reason behind your question about men is a lot to do with the socializing. Okay, little girls play with dollies and little boys play with tanks. <laughs> what? <laughs> rubbish uh, you know i mean it's, it's socially determined and that's that's it and uh, little boys hit harder than little girls of course and uh, that's all wrong it's wrong you should bring up the child not hit anybody or not to be violent <laughs> and you want to bring the child up to talk with their tongue not with their fists and uh, little boys are encouraged to fist you're you're they do boxing and all this kind of stuff and um you get a lot of uh, problems from bullying um, bullying in nursery school, bullying in um, uh, um, primary school, very, very, very dangerous. Uh, Long-term effects of that 
I was bullied at school. You hear it all the time. Mm -hmm. And what do they do? They give up. Cut off. Can't do anything about it, which they can't at that age. They learn, I can't do anything about it. They learn non-agency. They learn impotence. Um, and my task or our task or the task is to empower them. Say, oh yes, that was terrible, but you can do something about it now. You can say things now that you couldn't say then. I mean, that's why then is so beautiful because you say, um, everybody can see that he's an adult, but he cannot say, hello, mother, I'm an adult. Now what's going on? You can see it on the video. What? His frontal lobes. I'm speechless, mm. but not with terror. Mm. <laughs> speechless with frustration. I mean, it's obvious. Now, in order to get then into that position, I should say, I saw him four or five times before I was allowed to video, before I was allowed to bring my camera in. I started work in prison July the 1st, and this is September the 11th. And there's a lovely little story about that. So um, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the prison and John Marriott's my friend and so on and so forth. And John, being a little bit of a bombastic, has agreed to give a talk to the forthcoming uh, Prisoner Governors Conference. And he's terrified. So he says to me, he said, can we do a joint presentation, Bob? Can we? Can we? So I'm talkative. Can we? I said, well, I'm sorry, John. Um, in order to do that, I have to have a video camera. Right, right. <laughs> Sign the chit, bring the camera in, bring the bring the tapes in, pass all the security <laughs> and everything, and start videotaping. And um, mm. once you've got it, of course, mm. that's permission. And so uh, July the 1st I start, it was a Monday, and then September the 11th I take me video in, and in the morning, as it says in the video, I say to Lenny, all right, if I videotape him, um, um, talk about um, trouble with parenting and stuff like that, and I start off in the video. Um, so how would you explain to other people what we're talking about and why? And he's straight in there, straight in there. Because I've had three or four sessions before tuning him in, and in it he says, if you'd call yourself Dr. Johnson, I wouldn't have nothing to do with you. <laughs> <laughs> because you're on this equal level. Otherwise, you're parental. Well, you're a naughty little boy, you see, so just behave yourself. Shuts them off like that. And if you're not careful and you're a parental figment, then you're in trouble because that's who they tend to get angry with, shall we say. And that's really what happened with Freud, if I can go into that a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Freud said, transfer onto me your parental feelings. Right. And if I'd done that in prison, that wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah. And the other thing about Freud is, in 1900, he writes in The Interpretation of Dreams, an incident with his father, uh, who was quite a rascable man. And he's eight. Seven or eight, he recalls when he was seven or eight. And he goes into his parents' bedroom and pisses in the pot. And his father shrieks and said, the boy will come to nothing. And you can see Freud's pens digging into the paper as he says this. Now that's in 1900, when he's 41. And when he's 80, 
1939 or something, in 1937, he's writing about Mona's, uh, Moses and monotheism. And he says, well, we're actually talking about fathers here. You may trust them, you may not, but you will always be afraid of them. So if you had a problem with fear of dad and you went to see a Freudian, you'd get nowhere. And I was frightened of my father, no question. He, was, uh, he had a very bad temper, well, a, a temper. He was a very upright man in many ways. Now, there were a lot of good things from him, but he had a temper. And I, looking back, I was frightened of him until I was 49 in 1986. And I was able then to allow the person in front of me to express fear of her father. Before that, I'm quite sure, I mean, I've, re I've recorded sessions way, way back to the early mm -hmm. 60s, and I'm sure anger you're allowed. I wrote a thesis on anger. Um, but fear, I'm sure they started saying, no, well, no, well, no, we won't, we won't talk about it now. I would have stopped them. So you had to open your own box. It yeah. had to be opened already without anybody. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't have allowed it. I'm quite sure. I mean, it's dangerous. Yeah. Mm. A frightening parent is, is mm. in charge of your life. That's the point. The parent is your life support system until you uh, look after yourself. And that's why the, what the parent has to do is to wean them physically, emotionally, and otherwise. Um, and, and assure them that they can live on their own. And it's not always easy. It's not easy mm. because uh, parents get very anxious and they hang on. They, oh, that could happen to you. I want to do so mm. I can do it for you. I can do it. I can do it. Fine. That's not the answer. The answer is they have to learn themselves. They have to learn to toddle. That's the, the, the toddling uh, metaphor. They have to learn to stand on their own two feet mm. or right across. You can't stand on their feet for them. They have to do that themselves. And you can easily do whatever you learn to do but they have to learn to do it. And that's what the doctor has to do. That's what I had to do in the prison. I wasn't frightened of their dad. <laughs> so 49 probably was. So I couldn't discuss that. And I wouldn't have gone into the prison. I wouldn't have gone into the prison. And it would have been dangerous for me to go into the prison. But once I knew that there was no need to be frightened of dads, Mm. or mums, I mean, whichever, it doesn't matter which it is. And because what I learned was that the infant is gender neutral. The in, I mean, despite what Freud said, the infant is gender neutral. One of the parents is usually the, the dominant one, but it doesn't matter. Um, the, 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 the gender is of no consequence to the infant. The infant wants to know, are they being fed? Are they going to be looked after? Are they kept warm? Are they going to be loved? Are they going to be given affection and support? And if they're not, <laughs> then they have to make do and they make up a whole series of, of, of mm. uh, things which drive them. I mean, the, the, just to go back to the, uh, the political one, uh, one of Trump's recent rallies, he said, I've never had this much support in my life. That's true. And he isn't getting it now because he's looking for parental type of support, support. He doesn't call it that. And if you suggested that, he would lock you up or whatever you do. <laughs> but that's the bottom of it. So why do you think there are so many male killers? Well, I do, I do think we are a particularly gendered society and there's mm. expectations of men uh, that are rather different from expectations of women. But I was thinking also that we're an incredibly coercive society. Um, that the 
assumption behind all the legislations that tumbling out constantly is that people won't behave themselves unless there's a big stick behind them. Uh, and that is so, so wrong. Um, and I think that uh, that feeds into a particular type of toxic masculinity, which goes around with big sticks. Uh, and I, I don't think our government processes are particularly good role models. Um, so I would like a kinder society um, and a society that trusts each other to be kind and uh, institutions where compassion and kindness is put at its heart and that includes schools. I think schools have become very coercive places not only for the students but also for the, for the people that work there, the teachers. Um, and there seems to be an assumption um, that uh, experts um, are no longer uh, needed. <laughs> that, or uh, or they, they have to be controlled in some way. And they've um, uh, got... Uh, if they did... I mean, I'm, I'm, no, I know, I know most about the education profession and the health profession. So, in fact, agency is being taken away from, from teachers and uh, curriculums and protocols are being imposed. The same thing is happening in, in, in medicine. So uh, doctors can't, can't use their clinical judgments and uh, teachers can't use their compassion. So, you know, I really would like uh, a society that, uh, yeah, that's kind and trusting. And I mean, that's... And, our, our, and our, our, our public services are being atomized and scattered and shattered, really. Yeah. My mum quit as a teacher because of the bureaucratic strangulation. Mm. Do you think we're tiptoeing into Orwellian totalitarianism? <laughs> I hope not. I, could, I mean, I could write a dystopian novel about that, <laughs> but <laughs> I would like to. It's a bit like uh, what's happening in China. But yeah. you know, just take Lucy Letby. The whole layer of managerial lunacy. Uh, doctors are trained medically and they should make medical administrative decisions as they did when I was a medical student. Then it's part of the, of the denigration of the national health system. Uh, oh, they need managing. Oh, they save money. Wrong. The doctors know what the health service should do. And let be is a case in point. They said, just a minute, this is going to, no, no, our reputation, our commercial interest. What? It's absolute garbage. And I want to mention the, um, the recent article in, in The Economist because this is really uh, remarkable. Uh, it came out on the 26th of June, 2023. And I've summarized it here. And basically, they, I've taken the figures from there. And they say that each, each prisoner costs us all £50,000 each and every year. So if you add another 100 prisoners... That's five million extra every year. And guess what? 
the plans the government has is for 100,000 prisoners shortly, mm. with no extra funding. Talking about, oh, building more prisons. Building more prisons, it's, it's an expensive way of making things considerably worse. You're building and more schools to, and hospitals. And then I want, <laughs> then I want, to, know, I want to know why crime, why antisocial behavior, why violence, why murder. So taking the, the data from that article, half of all thefts, which includes burglaries, muggings, shoplifting, car break-ins, are carried out by people who are addicted to drugs. They're funding the habit. Drug addiction, any addiction, is a medical disease. It is treatable, and I would say it is curable. What you have to do, drug users have given up. Well, the frontal lobes aren't working and they're getting in a mess, so they make them work even less well by dosing themselves. They need emotional support on the ground for trustworthy people so they have a better future. Look, laddie, if you stopped drugging yourself, you could do all these fantastic intellectual things. And Drugs in prisons are appalling. They're just, they're just, they're it's just, the only way to survive, isn't it? So, then the next thing is what I've called orphans, right? Mothers have to feed their children. So poverty comes in here. So when mothers are locked up for petty crimes, now the economist counts 17,000 orphans every year. Every year, this is government policy. Lock them up. Lock them up. Rubbish. It's, 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 it's antisocial behavior. Right. Well, it's the opposite of sensible, for apart from anything else. Now, the, the other fact that hit me from that article was a quarter of all prisoners have been in care. Right. So you have a hospital... And a quarter of all people have got uh, tuberculosis, right? And you find that uh, the people with tuberculosis have been to this particular school or particular uh, context. You don't take any notice. You don't bother. What? That's medical negligence. You want to stop tuberculosis, you go to the source of the tuberculosis. Here you have a quarter of the people have been orphaned, been childcare. Why doesn't that register? And I'll tell you something else. That's the quarter you know about. <laughs> There's three quarters who aren't telling themselves and not telling any reports. Oh, yes, I had a lovely childhood. Yes, well, of course, my father raised uh, me because that showed he loved me. You hear this? It's absolute crap. So, what I want is reform. And according to this article again, polls show that voters are not as keen on imprisonment as governments. That's the first thing. Good. Uh, that's right. <laughs> and they also say that a trauma-informed criminal justice system works. Mm. Mm. So, uh, 
Sure, and what we want is an undertaking that this will produce a trauma-informed uh, criminal mm. justice system because I'm not going to rest mm -hmm. until it does. That is what we are campaigning for, and that's why your work dovetails nicely with our mission statement, which is to end the war on drugs, end mass incarceration, low-level drug users referred to mental health, look at what they do with Portugal with the heroin mm. users, got mm. them down to record lows, and prisons... More Dr. Bob's required, definitely. Huh. Yes. Um, we're, at, we're almost at two hours. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers who've been with us on this I journey? I just have to take that last point. I came up to Manchester three years ago for a webinar organized by Edwina Grosvenor on one small thing. She'd done a lot of work in prisons. And there were feedback from the uh, webinar, and they said, more Dr. Bob's in the prisons. <laughs> and I mean, it's, 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 it's a totally different way of looking at what is a scary thing. Uh, your, mm. your, your house is broken into, your car is broken into, very traumatic, very painful, and uh, a lot of anger. Oh, yes, I know. I wanted to show the viewers this. There's this book, You Will Not Have My Hate, and there's another book, I Shall Not Hate. This mm. the second book, his three gorgeous daughters and his niece died in their bedroom when an Israeli army shell exploded in it. Oh, my goodness. Mm. And he writes that. Wow, forgiveness. Mm. Because he says that hate and revenge are cyclical. They go round and round. And this book, <clears throat> You Will Not Have My Hate, is written by a Parisian his wife went out to the uh, for a nightclub that was mm, uh, that shot was... down by the um, uh, Islamic terrorists. Mm. You will not have my hate. Mm. So these two show, well, are you going to say, well, that's, they're not thinking straight or they're weak or they're cowardly? Or no, these people have arrived. These people have got back to what I think is a lovable, sociable, non-violent mm. status. And this is what human beings potentially are. So these people are, are ahead of the game. They're, they're doing <laughs> what I talk about. Mm -hmm. And what, what inspires me and what, 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 I, what I did in the prison, what I was aiming for in the prison. And, 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 and the fact that they can do it shows it can be done. So do you want to hold up those two books and just let the viewers know the gist oh, yeah. and, and why they should check them out? Yeah, this is my book. It's really the um, backstory to our adventures when we... I went down to the Isle of Wight and Bob started working in the prison. Um, and it shows my reactions and my feelings to what was going on there and what was happening to us. Um, uh, we ended up actually in the High Court being, <laughs> being uh, prosecuted because Bob was... Um, letting uh, prisoners' faces be shown on television. But oh um, that's part, part of the story.
And for people who are just listening to this on yeah. audio, it's called The Prison Psychiatrist's Wife yeah. by Sue Johnson. And there's a foreword by Charlie Bronson, who uh, I uh, feature in the book. Um, yes. So it's a good read. It makes people cry, I think. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's always, it's always uh, yeah. And you've got... Next to that was... Oh, no, that, that's my notebook. Okay. But the Bart's Bob's book. Yeah. Bob's latest uh, book, should yeah. I say. Because the publisher was publishing that, and we were discussing it on a Zoom, I said, how about looking at a proposal of mine? He said, oh, all right then. Hmm. And then he um, agreed to publish it, and here it is. Uh, a friendless childhoods explain more. And the picture shows here uh, a crushed child thinking tanks. Now I can guarantee to you that no warmonger had a secure childhood. And that real worriers, I mean I quote Hitler's description of his own childhood and it's absolutely diabolic. The real worry is that Putin's childhood was rocky. Xi Jinping's childhood was appalling. I must tell you a little story about Xi Jinping. When he was 14, <laughs> he was the wrong side of the Cultural Revolution. So they put him on a very heavy uh, dunce's cap, metal one, with this man is a traitor to the state. The room is full of people jeering and throwing insults at him and his mother's in there. So they send him to a remand home, a secure institution, and he breaks out, because he's a clever lad, runs home through the rain, comes in, Mom, I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm hungry. So she sends for the police. Thank you. So inside, there is an explosion. So what do you find him doing? You find him controlling the Chinese nation. Any conceivable insults, to Xi Jinping's thought, or Xi Jinping, brutally suppressed. Mm -hmm. He's going to invade Taiwan because his figments tell him to control. And the really worrying thing is that Hitler, in his bunker, before he shoots himself, turns on the German people castigates them, and had he had a nuclear button, he would have pressed it. So if that doesn't worry you, Good grief. Mm. something's wrong. Wow, what yeah. an absolutely fascinating interview. So please check out the books. Are you guys available on socials? Bob has... I've got, I've got a Substack page. Okay. Substack, Dr. Bob Johnson. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll and this, this, is, this, yeah. Is, this is the book that I wrote for a... Um, uh, a workshop in Denmark and you see it's called Verbal Physiotherapy which ties in with having a stroke but it's a verbal stroke and if you uh, if you have a stroke in your arm and the physiotherapist says you can do it you can do it I can't I can't <gasps> good lord and you keep at it you can do it and that's exactly what happens with the verbs Mm -hmm. uh, hello, mother. I'm an adult. 
Do you believe that? <laughs> uh, I will do, I will do, and they get stronger. So it's verbal physiotherapy. So the, 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 the place I, I write most and you can comment on most is the Substack page. Okay. That's I, Substack. I have an Instagram, which I have to start using now. I think I've put Substack one picture of this Johnson. up, but I don't think I've put a picture mm. of myself up even yet. Mm. <laughs> oh, well, huge thank you for coming on, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as me. <laughs> Please put your comments below the video. Let us know what you yeah. think. And please check out the books and support this important work. And huge thank you again. Chin. I just yeah. want to say to John, this has really been a wonderful <laughs> experience. Thank you so Thanks. much. I really Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you very really much. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Fantastic. <laughs>